Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. Why would anybody watch a scum show like Videodrome? Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Videodrome is over. Long live the new flesh. Max Wren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He What's has that? been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since. What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Hello. 
All right, uh, Andy Videodrome. Now, this is one, again, that both of us had seen prior, right? Yes, indeed. Right. When's the last time you saw old Videodrome? Is this one you put on occasionally on the old Laserdisc? No, I've never owned this. I only watched it once I rented it because it was one that I'd always heard about. And I can't remember what spurred me on to check it out. I, I think finally I just watched it. It was probably in the last 10 years or so. And I thought it was a pretty interesting movie. Um, definitely some interesting imagery throughout. Definitely something that fits well in the body horror uh, side of Cronenberg's works. And it's a. I think that he's saying a lot with it. So it's it's an interesting film to check out. Uh, is it my favorite of Cronenberg's films? No, but I think it's a very interesting one that's definitely memorable. It sticks in your head. This film does. I I made um I made a joke with myself, and I was feeling really pompous about it uh, because I read somewhere in in one of the reviews as I was prepping for this film that they they called based on this film they called Cronenberg a thinking man's genre filmmaker. And uh, so I wrote in my notes, <laughs> what is he, the nightmare Marshall McLuhan in a director's chair? And I was feeling super pompous. And then I read that, in fact, Marshall McLuhan was actually a lecturer of Cronenberg uh, at University of Toronto, where he went to school. And suddenly my uh, joke felt really thin uh, because, <laughs> in, in fact, he is nightmare Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> in the director's chair, and it's straight up not funny. He's really seriously taking that role very seriously. This is a film that wants us to talk about these major cultural shifts that come with each new wave of enabling technological forces. And in this case, we happen to be right around the time of the uh, of video, video cassette, mass media, mass television. Television is the, uh, is the new teat from which we get our uh, intellectual nourishment, and that nourishment is thin. Do you feel swayed? Have you decided to hang up the podcast because enough media? <laughs> no, we don't need any more. Yeah. Cut. Cut it all. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, I actually, yeah, he's he's saying some interesting things here about media and this need to feed, uh, you know, suckling on the teat of it, as as you so aptly described. Uh, it's a it is this this thing that has come into our lives and working in the industry. It is interesting to see our protagonist here, played by uh, James Woods, as a uh, what, like a CEO of a of a cable company that's trying to find edgy material to kind of stay on the cutting edge. So people want to watch their network. It had been kind of softcore porn, but now he's looking for that next big thing. And I felt like this is conversations that we are constantly having with with networks when we're trying to pitch shows and stuff. It's like, you know, it's it, it it's this is what they're doing. They're trying to find that next big thing. And you can see the shifts in the industry as somebody finds something that really taps into uh, society and everybody loves it. And then everybody tries to jump on that bandwagon to figure out, okay, what can we do that was kind of still riding that wave? And it's it's this constant and, and crazy uh, frenzy that is going on in the industry. And that's on that side of it, not even touching yet on on the viewer and what viewers get out of all of this and how it affects us. And that whole idea of violence on screen and does you know when you're watching violence is it affecting you and and uh, this is an age-old story that we've heard about you know you're watching violent bugs bunny cartoons you're going to grow up with violent thoughts and it's it's this element that cronenberg is really exploring here that i think is really fascinating and i like a lot of these things that he's he's pushing here um, does it make me want to quit the industry and run fleeing and and throw all of my viewing devices away, especially now that it's gotten to a point where everybody's carrying around at least one, if not more, viewing devices around constantly and constantly looking at it? It's It was a very prescient kind of uh, storytelling here, and watching this film, I think, is just more and more relevant in today's society. So I yeah, I found it to be a fascinating look at at all of this. And I think Cronenberg is, um, you know, he he is smart. And yes, the thinking man's genre filmmaker. Yeah, I would agree with that. He's definitely putting a lot of thought into stories like this. 
to your point specifically, I wonder if this movie would have been as interesting a technical exploration had we been watching it in 1983 and not today, you know, with the ability and the gift of hindsight, noting just how much he got right. You know, I found it really interesting as I as I as the movie opens, you know, and we have his video wake up call, right, nudging him to consciousness. And that's his aid is effectively his, you know. I don't know, his Alexa, uh, who is waking him up. And in this case, it, she's a staff member, but and she's recorded this bespoke wake-up call for him on video. But, um, it, you know, it like I, I have my bedside speaker wake me up with the news in the morning. And I found that experience watching this movie and having that happen jarringly prescient. Like that was, uh, I had forgotten just how much he'd gotten right. and right now like right now these things that he is discovering or that he has sort of originated uh in this you know modest budget canadian horror flick are you know sitting on my bedside table i thought that was that's fascinating a little bit scary the institution you know we've talked a lot about the institution over the over our exploration of of early cronenberg films uh the institution as represented by the medical establishment he clearly has some issues with the medical industrial complex we had plastic surgery uh we had the uh institution the self-contained um ship of uh, sexual predators. Uh, it, we've and and now we have the institution, and it, it's a little bit bifurcated if, if, to my eye. One, we still have a, a megalomaniacal company, spectra, spe, spectacular optical, the the glasses company, which is a front to a weapons manufacturer. We also have this sort of air quotes institution uh, that is not medical psychological care and its malevolent impact on. Uh, communities, but the media industrial complex, right? And he's added this sort of religious element where there's this like way house where, you know, people who are stricken and, and poor and hungry living on the streets come and they watch TV in these little booths. I thought that was such an interesting way to poke at this idea of mass media mind control that he clearly likes a lot and has explored in these other films that we've talked about. Um, how did all of this kind of hit you when you look at this as in terms of Cronenberg's big institutional question? Well, I, that, I, I mean, I think you said all of that pretty well, like he's really, he clearly has some things to say about these different elements. Uh, I, I think definitely this, this idea of media and the way that the media is controlling, uh, people, not just controlling people, but providing an outlet uh, I, I think it's more providing an outlet for people to, but but as a way to kind of um, you know placate you, I guess, or just to kind of to numb you, and and that's what I found so interesting about the uh, the kind of the um, Salvation Army style uh, place that that uh, people were going to, which was such an interesting element to have in this film. You know, you had people going in. And uh, just going into booths to watch TV, I think that said a lot because I mean, some of the, I don't know if Salvation Army is the best example, but but maybe, but really, it's like these these uh, you know food shelter places that draw these homeless people in. Um, but part of coming in is you are going to you know we're going to preach the word to you. And it's kind of taking uh, a an angle where we'll help you, but you're going to get our message. And taking that and putting it into this world where it's this Marshall McEwen, uh, McLuhan character that we have in uh, uh, Brian Oblivion, who is kind of the the preacher here. And, uh, you know, he's kind of preaching this whole idea of, of the medium is the message and all this sort of stuff. And, and these people are absorbing that. And I think, oh, I got another one. I got another one. Marshall McHeadroom. <laughs> OK, I'm sorry. It was too good. I couldn't pass it up. Marshall McHeadroom. Go ahead. There you it's go. funny. It's funny. Uh, like there, that was the end of my point. Whatever. I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I was I, too I much. Andy, it was I like a, on it. I had I to say it immediately. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, uh, so can we talk about uh, Oblivion? I think you were about to go on a roll about McHeadroom, and I think it's important that that we uncover this guy because he is. I was just I was fascinated by the whole mechanic of his experience in this movie. 
Well, I, I mean, and it is this this media character who's speaking about the nature of media and you know the role it has in our lives, and and the fact that he is never seen in the film when he's not on a screen, and it, I just think that that was a really interesting way to play this character. Uh, what an interesting idea to kind of bring that in, and then to have Nikki kind of basically take on and assume that mantle as the film progresses and become this character that that Max sees kind of in these hallucinations as the new representation of Oblivion. I thought that was a really interesting kind of way to view all of that. Oblivion is dead. If we're looking at narrative time, he's been dead for some time, right? What they say, a year or something like that. He's been dead a long time. He has recorded himself doing these video monologues, thousands and thousands of them, enough so that he they can send a tape to a televised interview show, and it well, appears my sense that he, was my sense was that was earlier because was it I, I don't know I See, didn't know what the point time... he was making there because it kind of felt like oh my gosh maybe he's recorded so many tapes that he is he's actually 10,000 monkeys with 10,000 typewriters like he has yeah. literally said everything he's and, anticipated and possible. every possible question I just felt like there was a, a there had to be a time jump in, in, in the way that I saw the film because you have uh, it, it seemed pretty clear that Max and Nikki were not a thing when they were on that show, but it seemed like that was their uh, meet cute, basically, as he kind of comments on her red dress and why is she wearing it and all this stuff, if not to be seductive. And then the very, like, a, a scene later, a couple scenes later, they are a thing, and they're, you know, sleeping together, and he's going to her office to to get her and stuff. It, it just felt like there had to be a gap in time, like something shifted there. So I felt like there's a possibility that the first part happens while Oblivion is alive, and then all of the other stuff is happening while he's dead. But even that doesn't make sense, because we see him get killed on camera, but then he has another message later. And so I, I think that there's a point where Oblivion, we're not actually seeing, it's just, it's it's all these hallucinations. Because when we do see the one where he's talking directly to Max, that's the tape where that's, a, it's a living tape, it's kind of pulsing and everything. And so I right. think a lot of this is hallucinations that Max has uh, that have been induced because he started watching Videodrome. Okay, well, that's all it's very confusing. confusing. And it it's, leads to the next uh, thing uh, on my list, which is the power of hallucinations in the film and, and using it as sort of a narrative propellant. And I think this is, a, this is an important one because this movie, it's trouncing on the, the not-so-fine line of, uh, you know, losing control of the hallucination as a narrative point to the point where it it could become a detriment to the film. And a number of the reviews that that uh, I've read, certainly the popular reviews like Jumping from Rotten Tomatoes have said, you know, the movie is just too confusing for its own good. Once you get over the fact that it's a movie that really uh, trucks in sex and violence and snuff and, and, you know, all of the stuff that that is kind of the dressing of the film. It's just too damn confusing for its own good. And um, and so if, you know, I, I wonder how well the film makes its points uh, when the use of hallucinations become a, a challenge, you know, beyond the acceptance of the viewer. Well, and that's, uh, I mean, that's an interesting point, because I mean, it's for for me, it's far from a perfect film. I think there definitely are some issues with it. I, it's it's interesting, because there is that element of hallucinatory storytelling, when it is a very subjective journey that you go on with the protagonist who is having hallucinations, and you just like him are having a hard time determining, is this a hallucination that we're watching right now? Or is this real life? You know, where is that line? And what is this? And what is the message that I'm receiving about this? I uh, I do feel like uh, it's a really interesting journey that we go on with Max as he goes down this road to kind of, uh, it's almost a road of madness as he kind of takes on this idea of of the new flesh and what does that mean? And, uh, I mean, it's hard to say what it really, 
what it really means. And I, but I, I think that's where, for me, the film does get a little muddled, trying to figure out, you know, how does that fit into the message of what Cronenberg had been saying up to this point with the new flesh and and the hallucinations and what the idea of Videodrome is supposed to be doing. And, and as we get to the end of the film, and these hallucinations basically lead Max to kill himself, uh, is that is there a new flesh after that? Is new flesh like a rebirth in some sort of technological way that that possibly Brian Oblivion found, or is it just like a kind of a, a, a journey of madness? And he gets there, long live the new flesh, kills himself, and really that's the end. And and you know the new flesh is basically death. And yeah, it's a little it's a little muddled. Is a, a response to that that I think is it, it makes the film uh, both more challenging and more interesting to me. And this is a discussion of the original ending of the film uh, when Cronenberg was asked, you know, talking about how he was originally planning to end the film. He says after the suicide, how the film ends naturally he says long live the new flesh. Max does and he shoots himself in the head after the suicide. Max ends up in the Videodrome set with Nikki hugging and kissing and neat stuff like that. A happy ending. Well, it's my version of a happy ending. Boy meets girl on the Videodrome set with a clay wall, maybe covered in blood, but I'm not sure. Freudian rebirth imagery, pure and simple. But then he says he canned the epilogue because he didn't like the allusion to the afterlife. He didn't want the audience to think that the that the these characters ended up in any sort of afterlife because as an atheist he does not believe one exists and that to me like i would have been right with you that perhaps there is some sort of afterlife that there is some sort of experience beyond that this is a this is the the sort of um the the merge of uh human and technological life like this is a precursor to uh um you know what was that other uh, uh, uh orphan black uh this is a precursor to orphan black another whack job canadian story awesome <laughs> um and, and yet i it just reads like more of an interesting journey of potential warning signs and lessons on our relationship with technology that ultimately in this version leads in madness. I'm certainly glad that he did not go with the other endings that he had because they, I mean, even he kind of acknowledged the the the, the way that he had described it with the different effects and everything. It, it was going to end up being a little sillier. This is, a, a, I think, a little more of an ambiguous ending. You don't really know where it goes, and maybe that's for the best. You know, I don't think we need it spelled out, and that's why I like some of these Cronenberg films, because we're not given a straight answer as to what does that really mean. Is there a rebirth? Is it just he's dead? I don't know, but I think everybody can kind of take what they want out of it. And that's not really where my problem lies with the film. How about the sex? And the snuffy stuff. I mean, I, I think it fits. And, and that's, I think, the key of the film is, and that's what I was saying earlier, that I find so interesting about where we're going with entertainment and the idea that, you know, people are always trying to find the next thing that is going to push and titillate and kind of draw people in. And in this world that we're watching in Videodrome here, it's gotten to this point where the next thing that this this uh, cable, this head of this cable company latches onto is basically snuff films. And uh, I mean, it's just, there's no story. It's just straight up snuff. And uh, it's kind of an interesting and shocking kind of uh, message that Cronenberg is saying here is like, this is where this road will go. And I feel like he's both criticizing and like the whole message about how, you know, you watch violence and you become violence. You're, you're, you're numb to it. It doesn't mean anything to you anymore. And I feel like it's making a comment on it, but also I think it's, I think it's interestingly making a comment in both directions. The fact that Max is, I mean, he really is numb. He's watching this stuff and doesn't, doesn't get any sense of it one way or the other, whether it's the the sex, the violence, whatever it is. I think it's also saying you watch that stuff, but it's it's there's a level of that that's just entertainment because in his own life with Nikki, we see that 
just because he's watching that stuff doesn't mean he is kind of that person. And Nikki pushes him to kind of become that person. You know, she's burning herself and wants him to kind of start this whole S&M relationship that they end up having. But he wasn't by nature that. And, and so it was an interesting thing to kind of see that kind of shift happen with him. And, that that uh, it was, and he wasn't by nature that, and was surprised when he learned that those films were real, that they weren't right, staged. Right. And she was an advocate for purity and uh, a public figure in the face of uh, just having cleaning, cleaner relationships. She was some sort of, a, she was a, I, I didn't get a self-help a, sort of. Yeah, I, I didn't get a good enough sense of the kind of like self-help work that she did we hear just a little like snip of her we see just a little bit of her uh on the radio uh in the booth and she's you know trying to get somebody to call a self-help line um and then she goes home and turns out she is the driving force of their sadomasochistic relationship and their kind of journey together and she's the one who wants to go audition for the Videodrome right, team. Right. That's a that's an interesting sort of context shift that we have here that he puts her the the this the uh, you know this woman who is the public face of innocence in the film is the driving force of um uh the the darkness of the film. Yeah, it was a really interesting angle to kind of put us there with her and and just kind of see this this road that they start exploring and it's just like i guess this is how s&m relationships start working you know it's like pierce my ears while we have sex you know it's just <laughs> it's something simple like that and it just goes down next thing you know whip my tv and yeah you know, oh it's... god you've gotten to chapter six <laughs> whip my tv oh that'll that'll give us the uh the adult rating on the show for oh, sure. <laughs> goodness so it's uh, it, I, yeah, it's a really interesting uh, way that the story um, kind of unfolds, and the way that really we are watching this character go deeper and deeper down this this rabbit hole. I mean, it's it's a dark world that he kind of ends up in as the story uh, grows and comes to its big climactic moments. We have a character here, the the uh, well, first of all, leadership behind uh, spectacular optical and brian oblivion to some extent these are uh individuals who want to use this technology as a way to spread kind of their mind control message or, or their message and then eventually use as a way to control minds it it's uh it sniffs suspiciously of shivers uh i i just got this this feeling here we are we're exploring the maniacal genius and his efforts to uh control the populace did you uh did you well, did you catch that so and it's an element that is like I, I, I another area that i felt was a little unclear could have used a little more work in the way that the story unfolded because it's, it's like okay so is he is uh you know this guy uh, a bad guy inherently the convex the one who kind of runs spectacular optical mm -hmm. is like is, is he really trying to help people and kind of cure the world of these ills that the kind of the video world that people are inhabiting or is he is so is he is there a good side to him or is it just kind of bad what you know where does where does this land because i i didn't really get a Better, like a really good sense of kind of that that element of this. Did you? It's interesting because when we meet him, we are already in the cycle of hallucinations, right? Correct. Like we're already past the point in the film where we can trust what we see explicitly. And that I feel like toyed with me this time. Like I, it, I really wanted to figure out like who's who's good, who's bad, whose intentions are are you know sound, and whose are ill. And I couldn't get it. I did feel like we had this this bit in the basement, that weird basement where Convex puts the helmet on Max and tries mm, to record right. a hallucination where he the he fantastic kinda, VR headset. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> He he was dabbling in sensitivity, right? You could feel like Convex had, was at least playing the part of, uh, you know, the guy who wants to to help one another, to help Max. Like he's he really wants to learn about and try to solve this problem. Um, yeah. But the fact that alone, the fact that he is 
working and researching in this area that does these things to these people's brains is enough to make him the antagonist of this thing. Like there right. is like he is the definition of the evil corporation that we talked about on Saturday matinee last week. Like that's he's he's the bad guy. Yeah, it's just and but there's an element like he's the bad guy, but he's trying to help society, right? Like he's trying to cure society of these violent ills. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, you know, and maybe is, he's just going about it the wrong assistance? way. Like is, is that assistance, right? Having this this uh a brand leader uh actually try to cure you of what he perceives as well, yeah, no, it's but I mean, to that end, he very much is like the uh, the proselytizer, yeah. uh, you know, the 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 on TV. Although he's not the one on TV, but he very much uh, is, and you get a sense of that, uh, you know, kind of that spinster, like when he's at his big, um, the big uh, convention, the, right? the big he's convention, the sales meeting. Thing. Yeah, it feels very much like he is that sort of guy, and so to that end, yeah, I feel like you know he is pretty much portrayed as the bad guy. But I feel like, okay, bad guy, but maybe he was going into it with good intentions or, you know, and just kind of fell down this rabbit hole. Because I, I I really felt like there was that element of that TV evangelist with that character that felt like he really believes he's helping people, but I don't know if he actually is, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's an interesting element to also bring to it. But I think it also ended up kind of muddling some of the those elements for me. Well, it, it's an interesting sort of tapestry of characters that we have with, with you know, between Max and Bianca and Nikki. And, you know, we have this other character we haven't even mentioned, Harlan, uh, who is kind of the double agent, right? He started as an aide to Max in the TV station and kind of a hacker guy who's like intercepting signals of of rogue broadcasts and it turns out he was working for spectacular optical all along and uh, so we have a, a this double agent character all of these characters uh are I, I think when we look at cronenberg's maturing as a filmmaker now all of these characters are strike me as more complex and more interesting than prior films i and and I'm some of it I know is looking at you know has to do with an actor like James Woods who is just sort of the frenetic energy of this character who is and I'm not I'm not a great fan of James Woods as a as a uh, public persona uh, but my goodness I I thought he was terrific in in this film and I, I think representing what Max the complexities of Max Ren I think he he did a fantastic job same thing with uh, you know Sonia Smiths and Debbie Harry as Nikki Brand like I really enjoyed their uh, the sort of universe they created of complex human darkness if you if you if you get into the universe of human darkness they did a good job for me. I'm. I don't know. I, I'm surprised that uh, I didn't know. Maybe that you had an issue with James Woods, in kind of just in a, in a general sense. I generally really enjoy James Woods, and I, 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 as I watched this, I'm like, this is the sort of role that I really enjoy James Woods in because it just feels like so right up his alley, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, without knowing the guy or anything, but it just it feels like this is the sort of character that James Woods just really excels at kind of that that sleazy car salesman sort of character, you know, who's uh, just kind of a little edgy and kind of pushy. And I, I just felt like that it worked really well in context of him. And I really enjoyed watching him as he kind of went down this dark rabbit hole. I thought he did a great job in it. And, you know, and just all of these people. Yeah, I mean, it's a strong cast. Um, for me, I, I think that it really did boil down to the, the the pairing of James Woods and Debbie Harry as kind of our our key pair of uh, of kind of the the protagonist and the girl. But every everyone I thought did a really great job in this film. Um, somebody you didn't mention was uh, Lynn Gorman, who plays Masha, the the other kind of the producer who's kind of creating these what looked like really terrible, um, uh, just kind of, I don't know, Roman, like softcore porn things. Yeah. Like it was kind of <laughs> ancient era pornography. 
yeah, is is such odd films, but she becomes a really interesting character. And I really enjoyed kind of, she's like looking for work and she's just hungry. And so she's like, yeah, I'll look into it for you. And she kind of is the one who he taps to find out more about Videodrome and they kind of go down this road. And I just, I don't know, I found her character really interesting, especially because she ends up being the one who, when it's the, when he's whipping the TV, it becomes her image that he's whipping on it. And then he wakes up to find her dead in the bed next to him. And so I don't know. I just I found all of that really interesting the way that it was constructed and you know done by I thought great actors all around. Yeah, I I absolutely I I think so. I I think it was uh, this is one of those where you can again feel Cronenberg and his his casting, his ability to draw a great cast. Um uh, I I think he's I I think it is a mark of of him maturing as a filmmaker. I I really I really <laughs> Weird. I really liked it. This film has been sitting not so great in my ranked movies for some time now, and it's it's kind of a delight to come back at it and look at it and actually like it more. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly where I was. I, I feel like when I watched it the first time, I just don't think I was ready for it. Mm-hmm. It was a film that it's an intense film to look at, and I watched it. And I'm like, okay, that's really interesting. I don't know if I want to watch that again because it's it's a lot to take in. Um, and so I am kind of glad we're doing this series and it pushed me to watch this because it is a uh, an art. It's a film that has art to it. There's a lot of thought to it. There's a lot to chew on as you watch it and explore. And is it perfect? No, but I think that there's enough here that I, it's a film that I feel like I could come back to and every time I could find another little element to kind of latch onto that gives me a whole new thing to think about. Cronenberg uh, worked with a number of his regular cronies, as we've discussed in uh, past episodes. It's becoming a thing now. He's got his team and uh, is going to stick with them. And it's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing that he's finding people to work with. On this film, um, Leslie Carlson is in this one. Uh, Leslie Carlson is uh, going to pop up in as an actor in several later films. Uh, Leslie uh, played Convex. He is going to be um, in two films that we aren't discussing in this series, but that we have discussed in other series. He's in The Dead Zone and The Fly. Howard Shore does the music for this. Mark Irwin is the DP on this. Uh, same editor, same uh, production designer. It's It still is very much a lot of the same team that we have here. Um, but specifically, we should talk about the effects and the great effects work that we get in this film. Observation before we start, because I want to hear everything that you have to say about the effects. This movie comes out in an era of video cassettes, and I was stunned by how quickly I was able to just buy it. Because I, the first time I saw a video cassette, and you handed over the big air, you know, puffy case of the cassettes and the stack, I was like, oh, look, it's like a history. It's an old timey movie. This is amazing. <laughs> and uh, I just, I was in it. Now, I'm sure that. Part of that is because I also, you know, cut my teeth editing on tape in the newsroom. And so I just it was very familiar, but it just didn't strike me as dated the way they handled tossing around all these tapes and making them feel like they were so part of this advanced technological wonderdrome. I I bought it. And that was a major surprise for me. Well, and that's, uh, you know, I will be really curious as time progresses to see how a film like this holds up to audiences that never grew up in this era, you know, that never touched a cassette or even know like what this film is referencing. Um, They're not going to have that same reference point. And so it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see, like, as our kids get older and they look at films like this, not have it's it's like you know films with old phones on the wall i mean at least those made more sense because you can see oh the person picks it up and they talk into it and all that sort of stuff but without the context do you think that's going to create a weird shift in in going back to a movie like this yeah if you don't have that point i i wonder because i you know my hunch is that the kids 
I look at, you know, I'll look at my kids and I, I should tell you as a parent, I did not watch this movie with my kids, either <laughs> one of them. Probably good. So I don't know what choices you made, but I was a, <laughs> I was a great parent on this one. My hunch well, you, is you can usually assume if you, if you didn't do it, I probably didn't do it first. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody put that on a shirt. Uh, I I didn't, and and I my hunch is that they would just it, it, they it, that the idea that it, it was uh, something that's as arcane as a video cassette tape would just sort of evaporate for them too. That they would look at it as some foreign technology that you know they're able to stick into the stomach player and transfer data. It's effectively the Lucy USB key. And then move on with the story. That's my hunch. I I hope that that's the case because I I I liked it. But think what we can tell our great grand grandchildren one day when we show them this movie. Yeah, oh, back in my day, yeah. we all had video players in our bellies. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We had some great special makeup effects from the one and only Rick Baker. It really is. Uh, this is the era. A great era of these great, uh, you know, effects that that people were kind of creating on set, and I mean, just from the from the videotape that's like kind of breathing and pulsing to the the TV that kind of turns into this sexual being that uh, James Woods kind of immerses himself into, uh, to kind of the insane and horrifying uh, murder of Barry Convex and kind of what happens with him. There is so much interesting stuff going on with these effects and the way that they designed them, especially the TV set and the way that they kind of used a giant dental dam for the screen uh, and then projected, like rear projected onto it so that James Woods could kind of fondle it and kind of put himself into it. Really clever stuff that they did here. I, I love seeing the way that uh, that Rick Baker and his team took what David Cronenberg's visions were and were able to kind of bring these things to life. There were a couple that struck me in a way that I couldn't I couldn't quite figure out what they were doing in the era that they were doing it. I know that he had a prosthetic arm, obviously, in many sections, there are many mm -hmm. uh, sequences. When he had his hand in his own stomach, when he had the gun and he would put it in his in his stomach. Uh, and then there was a sequence that looked like there was it, it looked like some sort of a composite. Did you notice the sequence where so he's on his couch and it's a wider shot and he's like stand he stands up and he's like kind of moving around yeah. and it looks like he's doing something where his arm is somehow composited i couldn't figure out what their intention was that they couldn't get with the prosthetic that they had to do some some it, other trickery no it was all prosthetics um it just it, so what happened was this is after so he he is hallucinating and he sees this this kind of vaginal video player hole in his belly and he ends up he's holding a gun and he puts his gun into it and then he stands up while his arm is still in his stomach when he's on the couch i mean that's just the old trick of you know mm -hmm. james woods is standing and then it's a dummy in front of him that he's doing all of this with right uh, when he stands, though, what Rick Baker did is he created basically another whole side and arm of James Woods. And the other arm was kind of in front of his arm. And the arm went into into kind of this this fake belly that was in front of his belly. And James Woods was his body was basically turned slightly to the side so that if when the camera was at just the right angle, his body and this fake front that was the fake arm and the fake stomach were blocking his other arm that he held behind him. And so what happened, though, is this, the the uh, the length of time that it was on James Woods, uh, I believe what was going on is it just kind of, it made it shrink a little bit. And so the arm ends up looking a lot more shriveled than it originally had. Mm -hmm. And so it it looks a little, a little wobbly, but it's still a little, I a think, little brown. It's like, it, yeah, well, and it's, yeah. it's shadowed. I mean, I, I think they purposely lit it dark anyway, just to kind of hide some of that with the effect. But it's uh yeah it it 
uh, it was a tricky thing to do. And I think that it would have worked had they shot it probably at the exact right time when it was ready. Unfortunately, they didn't. And so it ended up looking a little uh, haggard, I guess we'll say. That's that's a great word. Wilted even. Mm, yeah, but that's even a better word. It's a very cool sequence. And uh, it, it is, I mean, it just, it was, it's kind of mind blowing that they figured it out, right? Figured out how to actually make it compelling and, and that it lives up even as well as it does. Other fantastic, uh, any other sort of highlight sequences uh, of effects that that really struck you? I, I think they did some amazing makeup effects, like wiring the gun into his hand as it started to oh, become yeah. part of him. That was cool. I was just going to bring up as as my last one was the uh, the fantastic TV explosion at the end when it blows up and you have just a giant eruption of guts and everything that spills Ugh. all over the set. Much like our story that we had from our Day of the Dead episode, this was a similar one where they actually went to a uh, a slaughterhouse <laughs> the and they got a bunch story. of oh, pig no. guts. And they, they, uh, yeah, basically they used these pig guts on set and they said it smelled so bad, people were having a hard time breathing and everything. And then they had to kind of, it, it took forever to get this effect to work right. And so they just were, you know, it was just, a, you know, explosion after explosion of, of, of guts. And it was just incredibly stinky and disgusting. Well, I don't care for that story. I do not care for it. And on top of that, <laughs> They were racing against the clock, uh, trying to finish before uh, Christmas, and so you know it's it's like uh, because again because why there's going to be a run on pig guts? No, no, no. But they're trying to (laughs) they're trying to finish before the holidays, and so it's just one of those things that like you know the last thing they're doing is this horrible explosion of pig guts, and it's like you know basically the you know midnight on the 23rd of December, you know, so it's like a great way to kick off the holidays is blowing pig pig guts everywhere. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, it's rough. Uh, Apparently, uh, speaking of that sequence, I just noted that it was uh, actually Woods himself that had the idea for the uh, for the for shooting himself in the head in the end. Uh, that they he probably was just like, things. I'm ready to shoot myself in the head. I, <laughs> Let's just get, get a move on. And Cronenberg's like, great idea. Good Let's idea. Let's do that. <laughs> uh, very cool. So uh, I, I guess one more shout out to uh, Robert Ruveroy, who did all the video effects uh, in this movie. Got to shout out the guy who does video effects in a movie like Videodrome. Oh, uh, yes. Because there's so many tapes. Wow. Yes. What do you think of the music? Can we wrap up the music? You know, I, Howard Shore is fantastic, and he does great stuff when he's working. Uh, well, period, he does great stuff. Period. But with Cronenberg, he's working at a, kind of a different level. He, I think he gets very Cronenbergian with his scores, and this one was a great example of a score that really begins more orchestral, and as the film progresses, becomes more electronic. And I think that is a great way to define kind of this story, and and uh, uses the music in a way that works well in context of what the story is ideas are uh, yeah and also it uh it, it wore on me i found myself like energetically exhausted on this one i'm not saying it's like you know easy i listening. know when you listen you, to it you, as you go you to sleep at night <laughs> it's a I it is that. a tricky listen i just think in context of the film it works it's not my favorite of the scores together but i think it absolutely works 100 percent in the film here i'll give you 96 percent Mm, okay. Yeah, maybe ninety-eight. Ninety-five. It's 99. a It's a hot ninety-four. I. We're think, doing exactly what you're not supposed to do when you're. <laughs> when you're negotiating. Hundred one. Hundred one percent. I got a lot more room in the basement, baby. <laughs> uh, How to do an award season, Andrew? Uh, you know it. <laughs> this is not a film, unfortunately, that. Uh, that worked for a lot of people at the time. I think if it came out now, uh, well, I don't know if it came out now, it probably will have, would have just as many issues, but I think over time, this is the sort of film that is a slow burn and eventually people click with it. I just think when it comes out, it's a tricky one. Um, but it did still have three wins, seven other nominations at the Brussels international festival of fantasy film. The acronym is BIF. 
which I think is just fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, David Cronenberg won for Best Science Fiction Film, tying with uh, the film that I just love this name, Bloodbath at the House of Death. He tied with that then. I just wanted to watch that <laughs> film now just because the title is so fantastic. I've never even heard of that film before, but now I want to watch it. Uh, let's see. Six scientists arrive at the creepy headstone manor to investigate a strange phenomena, which was the site of a mysterious massacre years earlier where 18 guests were killed in one night. No, mm. I'm scared. I'm, I'm moved. Well, let's put it in a series. We'll talk about it soon. Bloodbath in uh, the House of Death. Oh. I know. Let's see. Mark you Irwin know what? That's, won, a series, oh. that's a series of great houses in movies. The House of Death. <laughs> great the House of houses. Wax. Right. House of Cards. House of Cards. Uh-huh. Got some uh, mammoth in there for you. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Mark Irwin won Best Cinematography and a Theatrical Feature for this at the Canadian Society of Cinematographers Awards. And, of course, the Genie Awards, the Canadian Oscars. David Cronenberg won. In fact, he tied Best uh, Achievement in Direction. This is funny. He tied with Bob Clark for A Christmas Story. So completely diametrically opposed to this particular <laughs> film. Which I think is fantastic. Um, the other nominees at the Genie Awards, we had Sonia Smits, who was nominated for uh, Best Performance uh, by an Actress in a Supporting Role. She lost to, uh, this is going to be a lot of Canadian films that neither of us have probably heard of before. She lost to Jackie Burroughs in The Wars. Are you familiar with The Wars? Neither the, am I. The <laughs> Oh, you made your point. <laughs> I made my point. Uh, next up, we have uh, Carol Spear, nominated for Best Achievement in Art Direction. She uh, lost to uh, Maria or Jocelyn Jolie in for the film Maria Chapdelaine. Is that how you would pronounce that in French? Chapdelaine? I don't know. Well, I'm not anyway. looking at it. Anyway, she lost. Uh, cinematography, likewise, Mark Irwin was nominated, but also lost to Maria Chapdelaine, however you say it. We have, um, we already talked about David Cronenberg. Uh, Ronald Sanders was nominated for Best Editing, but lost uh, to the Terry Fox story. Uh, Peter Dvorsky and Leslie Carlson were both nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role, but both lost to Michael Zelnicker for the Terry Fox story. And uh, last but not least, we have uh, David Cronenberg was nominated for Best Screenplay. And in this particular case, he did not tie with the team at A Christmas Story. He lost that one. But still, Best Achievement in Direction for Cronenberg. I think that's a yeah. uh, a good sign. So, Well, it, it it's a good sign, but what does it portend for the box office? This is uh, one of those movies that uh, marks a turn for him, right? Cronenberg, again, he did have a bigger budget. I mean, he keep, his budgets keep going up. This, he was working with almost $6 million for this one, or $15.3 million in today's dollars. Videodrome was released February 4th, 1983, opposite The Entity, a supernatural horror, and Without a Trace, a missing child thriller. With such a busy weekend for this type of film, and perhaps because it was a bit too Cronenberg for audiences, Videodrome never found its audience in theaters, only earning back $2.1 million, or $5.5 million in today's dollars. That puts the film firmly in the red, landing it with an adjusted loss per finish, finished minute of 110000 Perhaps it is little wonder that Cronenberg would work as director for hire on two Hollywood horror films, Christine and the Fly, before returning to his more personal style. Yeah, that's what I that's what I was thinking. I mean, because he'd been getting more money per film over the course of our, you know, discussions of him. And we didn't even mention this film, Universal, ended up coming on board as its distributor. I mean, he had kind of hit this point where big studios were now actually wanting to uh, work with him and distribute his stuff. And in this particular case, it just did not work. Well, I'll tell you, I had a much better time than I expected to have with this movie this time around. Uh, And I almost feel like its reputation has outgrown its experience. Uh, You know, you you talk to somebody about Videodrome and it's like it's it's similar to the message that we had in The Brood, which is everybody remembers the exploding head and oh, my God, it's so gory. But the film itself does not live up to or sustain that level of of horror. It's much more suspenseful than it is disgusting. And I find this film is similar, right? I mean, there are makeup effects that you can kind of get over. The grossest stuff is the stuff that you you have, are, 
too easily begin to moralize, right? You know, the 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 good or bad of the the stuff that you're seeing on screen. But as a film, uh, it didn't strike me as overly horrifying, uh, and I I stand surprised by that. I I found myself much more intrigued by the messages than the than turned off by the substance. Yeah, and and especially for a film that you know the uh, the ratings boards had had some time with uh, not just here in the states but also yeah. um primarily actually in Canada but just the stuff that they made him cut because they found it to be too much. Uh, it's I I think it's pushing boundaries uh, definitely in this particular case more along the sexual lines and or at least the lines dealing with sexual relations whether it's you know in an S&M capacity or uh, torture capacity or regular capacity. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's definitely pushing boundaries and doing interesting things. And I too ended up getting a lot more out of it this go around. I found it to be a really compelling watch, and it's one that I think I would put on down the road because I think there's a lot to uh, unpack with this one. Well, you know, I think it, in particular, I can see myself putting this one on with someone else who I would be interested in talking about it with. Uh, you know, like us, like this is a film that that I think is is made better as a result of a discussion. And um, uh, I, it's not a film I'm going to just sit in the dark and watch alone. But I yeah, don't know. Maybe I'll work film you want to you want to, uh, you know, have pie afterward and chat about. Pie? Are you making a joke? I don't know. I was debating if I was going to if there was a joke in there that I needed to push for. But we're just going to let that hang. I, I never quite. Yeah. Yeah. Leave it there. (laughs) I think then by now we should head uh, over to FlickChart and rank it. Let's see how it does. Let's do it. Head over to FlickChart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes or up or sideways or down, however you get to your show notes and tap the word FlickChart, it should take you, if the systems are go, it should take you straight over to this film in the FlickChart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, we have Videodrome or Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Interesting. Um, I'm taking Videodrome. Would you? Mm-hmm. How hard? Well, here's the thing. Long Robin live the flesh is, hard? <laughs> Robin Hood is a, is, I, I found it to be a pretty fun and entertaining movie. You know, it's it, it did some interesting new things with the Robin Hood myth, but I don't know how much I feel about, you know, wanting to jump out and rewatch it. Whereas this one, I feel like, you know, there's interesting things that I could always be unpacking with this one. It's a harder watch. It's more challenging, but sometimes that is still a better thing. So I'm going to go with Videodrome. The case I hear you making is that you are manipulating the vote because you feel like Videodrome belongs in the top half. That's what I heard you say. No, I didn't. I wasn't... uh, but yes, I do. And on but that, and that, on was that not my point, intention. Andy, since you said it, I agree. Let's do Videodrome. <laughs> now that you've said that's okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. All right, Videodrome or Raise the Red Lantern. I got to go Yang. Uh, yes. Uh, Zhang Yu uh, here. Yeah, Zhang Yu. Raise, Yingu, raise the Red Lantern. Mm-hmm. Videodrome or Mother. Mother. Bong Joon-ho. Yeah. I'll take Mother absolutely. as well. Videodrome or thank you for smoking. Thank you for smoking. Thank you for smoking. Videodrome or creep show. Ooh, I gotta go creep show. Creep show. Videodrome or Mad Max. I my okay. I think you're gonna say Videodrome. I'm gonna say Mad Max. I think I'm gonna say Mad Max. And so you can go ahead and jump on the bandwagon then. <laughs> okay. Videodrome or Star Trek Beyond. That has come up a lot lately. It I'm sure going to say Star has. Trek Beyond. Yeah, me too. Videodrome or The Lion in Winter? Say Videodrome. I'll say Lion in Winter. Okay, let's do it. All right, let's do it. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Scissors. Rock. Rock. Scissors. Scissors. Oh. <laughs> I'm just going to keep going <laughs> with my broken scissors. <laughs> All right, Videodrome takes it. Uh, Videodrome or the girl with the dragon tattoo. This is the one with, uh, which one is it? It is, uh, gosh, the poster, the names are so tiny and there's no image. It is Numi, the Numi version. Absolutely Numi. Yeah, girl with the dragon tattoo. 
Well, that puts Videodrome at spot 210 on our chart. 210 out of 424, which is about a 50%. Look at that. All right. So you, I trust, have re-ranked Videodrome in your own I have. Where did it end up for you now? It landed at spot 1041 out of 4221. So about a 75%, a lot higher than it had been. I think it was closer to a 30%. Wow. Uh, Mine was a one star for years. Are you ready to have your mind blown? I am. You are mind blown emoji. Out of out of 1,413 movies, this one shows up at 242. That's an 83%. Wow. Yeah, I That's know. Amazing. What's amazing, most amazing is that how many movies? 1,043? 1,413. 1,413. And this for me was spot 1,041. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a 75%. So. I'm working on it, man. Uh, slowly I'm but surely. I'm working on it. Uh, I know. I appreciate hard. that. It's so chart hard. appreciates that. <laughs> I wish it were a little faster. Flick chart. Oh, it uh, drives me crazy. Chart 2.0. Come on, baby. All right. Well, if I were to go by the algorithm, the flick chart algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a four star film for me uh, over there. I'm hedging that that uh, I, I feel like it's uh, it, it's it's almost earned it. Uh, four stars, but I just, I just can't get there. When the hallucinations start to betray the narrative, it just sort of falls off the rails. In spite of all the interesting questions that are going on, I just can't truck all the way through the movie to the end. So I think I'm going to raise this to a three star um, and feel pretty good about it. Three star. Well, for me, it is three and a half. I do find there to be a lot of interesting things the film is unpacking. Uh, but I also really struggled with some of those um, the hallucinations and the messaging and everything that gets muddled. But still, three and a half. I think it's uh, you know it's above average. It's a really fascinating film to watch, and uh, definitely give it a heart. I will uh, weirdly, yeah, I'll give it a heart. Yeah, yeah. All right, awesome. But, but the heart I'm giving it is in the shape of a TV. <laughs> a little the tiny, heart I'm a giving tiny it TV. is in the shape of eviscera spread out <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Well, since uh, we have already talked about Cronenberg's next two films on the show, as I alluded earlier, we've already talked about The Dead Zone in our uh, adaptations of Stephen King series. And we talked about The Fly in uh, some series that I still can't remember. <laughs> I should know. It was Listener's Choice. Oh, Matthew Medrano. That's right. As soon as you said that, I knew exactly. Totally. <laughs> Like, sorry, great, Matthew, it was a great I totally choice. should have known that, yes. Anyway, those two films uh, we are not discussing again. We are jumping past them to his last film of the 80s. We will be ending this series with Dead Ringers, uh, the twin gynecologist film. I saw that movie with my mom. Wow. In the theater. So think of, I want you to think about that as you watch it. What's a gynecologist, Mom? <laughs> it wasn't seven. <laughs> I just want to pretend that you still were asking her questions like that when you go to movies. <laughs> For crying out loud. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, it will be an interesting one to explore, which we'll do next week. So until then, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Andy. These were, I just, I'm so torn. <laughs> there are, I mean, there are gems in them, their hills. There are some interesting, uh, this, this is one that's not loaded with. <laughs> it's not loaded, but there's some in there that are really exceptional. I, can I, can I start because I have uh, my family namesake. Hmm. Yeah, Paula Wright. Oh, look I don't, at that. I don't know Paula, but I feel close to her. She says... That's because uh, she's next to you. I see her in, she's, in your video. 
He's behind you, Pete. <laughs> Get out of my <laughs> office. Uh, Paula says, uh, guaranteed to bring up your TV dinner. In the event of an emergency when watching this film, your empty popcorn bucket makes a useful vomitory aid. Your couch cushion can be used as a flotation device when the bucket overflows to drift yourself out of the living room and as far away from the telly as you can possibly get. You'll be sick to your stomach for sure, knowing you've wasted good money on bile such as this. So I like that one because of its nuance, because she actually was able to write a review that's almost as disgusting an image as many of the images in the movie. So I just, I just wanted to congratulate Paula. Well done. I'm torn if she works for the flight industry. Or maybe it, that was just, yeah. Well, it's, it's just well put together. Like she clearly travels a lot or yeah. works in the industry. Or she works for the TV dinner, in, TV dinner industry because clearly that industry is needing a boost. And this is the way to do it. Do you it. think that's her? That's her job? She's terrible at it. <laughs> if that's the case <laughs> what's well, yours she could have just said to bring up your dinner but she specifically said your tv dinner no that's true that's no, advertising that's right. it's Pete. probably it's, advertising. it's probably some sort of chicken fried steak variant that's a common tv uh, dinner. i was thinking uh, more of a sirloin steak sirloin perhaps maybe a mac yeah. and cheese with yeah. little ham mm-hmm. bits in it that's good Ooh, yes mm-hmm. oh well now that we have that image in our hands. How's yours? <laughs> Mine is uh, from Aaron H., who gives it a one star, who watched it on VHS tape and said, bad tape. Tape didn't work. And I would just like to say, in context of this film, I think this is an actual review. And I think he was hoping that it was Videodrome and that, he, that this tape would take him down a hallucinatory journey. And it didn't do what he wanted it to do that's what it was that's what Uh, this review is saying i totally get it no tumors no hallucinations (laughs) and the gun that he's holding is definitely not hardwired into his wrist and he keeps hitting it on his belly but it won't go (laughs) it won't go in it won't go in (laughs) thanks amazon (laughs) i've been podcasting since 2006 In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>